Welcome to the Journal of Inherited Metabolic Disease podcast, a fortnightly podcast about all things IMD. This episode features some of our authors discussing recent papers from the journal, and there are already over 30 episodes and many hours of metabolic content online. So please do have a look at that, but not before listening to today's special episode on novel therapies in mitochondrial disease. Hello, and thank you for joining me for a special episode with a focus on treatments in mitochondrial disease. In March 2021, the journal had a special themed issue on mitochondrial disease, which included a number of papers looking at treatments. So it made sense to try and highlight these. Obviously, I'm no expert, arguably on anything. So it's a great help and a privilege to be joined by a member of our editorial committee, an editor on the special issue and a professor of mitochondrial medicine. And it helps that they're all the same person. Professor Shamima Rahman. Shamima, thanks for joining me. Hello, James, and it's a pleasure to join you, and thank you for the very kind introduction. I should begin by congratulating you on becoming our new editor-in-chief at the journal. I feel like I should curtsy or something. <laughs> no, not needed. And I'll be doing this, obviously, in collaboration with Professor Matthias Baumgartner from Zurich, who will be editors-in-chief together. I'm certainly very glad to have you in charge. Now, it, it must have been, I think, around this time last year that we spoke about the challenges of arranging trials in mitochondrial disease. But in your editorial at the start of the mitochondrial disease special, you noted there were already over 100 trials underway with uh, over half of those involving interventions. Obviously, these things haven't come from nowhere since we last spoke, but exciting things are happening. Yes, uh, absolutely. Things are moving forwards. We've been doing a lot of work in the last year on, on outcome measures for clinical trials for mitochondrial disease. And one of the pharma-sponsored clinical trials has actually started recruiting in many centres across the world. So I think that is a really nice move and hope for patients with mitochondrial disease who aren't able to travel to the United States, where a lot of trials have happened in the past. However, despite this progress and that we have this trial currently ongoing, a big issue remains that we still don't have any licensed medicines for mitochondrial disease and none approved by the Food and Drug Administration in the United States. However, we did in 2019 see Idabanone receiving a special license from the European Medicines Agency for Labour Hereditary Optic Neuropathy and also taurine has received market authorization by the Japanese Pharmaceuticals and Medical Devices Agency for mitochondrial encephalopathy, lactic acidosis, and stroke-like episode syndrome, MILAS. I have to admit, that, that second one really excited me. I quite like the idea of using an energy drink to treat metabolic disease. Yes, I think the doses aren't quite what you get in a can of Red Bull. And also the evidence for taurine and MILAS is, is limited and there haven't been any randomised, double-blinded clinical trials to my knowledge. Oh, you could have just let me have my moment. I was just starting to think I understood this. Um, at any rate, within the special issue, you had three papers that looked at treatment and we'll be hearing from authors from all three today. And I think of these as being one study looking at an ex vivo response, one in vivo, albeit in an animal model, and the final one in a study involving real people with mitochondrial disease. Yes, I'm excited to hear from the authors discussing their own studies. And I think it's nice to do our regular walking commutes, listening to these podcasts. So let's hear from them. And this exploration begins with a paper looking at a novel approach to DGUOK or Digiwop disease. Uh, the magic of Zoom meant I could track down two of the paper's authors, Dr. David Dimmock of the Rady Children's Institute for Genomic Medicine and Dr. Mike Lawler of the Department of Pathology and Laboratory Medicine and Neuroscience Research Centre in Wisconsin. 
I asked David about the background of DGUOK mitochondrial disease and the history of treatment approaches so far. Yeah, so deoxyguanosine kinase was one of the, the first described hepatocerebral mitochondrial diseases. When it was originally described, it was described as this severe neonatal onset disorder um, where children presented typically with significant hypotonia and liver failure, as well as sort of progressive cerebral dysfunction. And ultimately, the majority of children that present that way, unfortunately, pass within the first year of life and most within the first six months of life. We published some papers about a decade ago now looking at survival and being able to see that there were really almost two distinct clinical groups with deoxyguanes and kinase. And the children that didn't have severe neurological presentations and didn't have this classic rotary nystagmus and severe hypotonia actually survive really well. Typically, the, the liver disease becomes manageable and children have pretty good long-term outcomes, although they do have somewhat significant neuromuscular hypotonia. But unfortunately, the course of the children with severe hypotonia or the classic rotary nystagmus is, is universally fatal. And it became clear that there was relatively simple deficiency of two substrates but primarily the deoxyguanosine kinase, um, and to a lesser extent, the cytosine that is needed. And Willem Tanneman at um, UCL had actually done some early studies showing that essentially if you just supplemented these into growth culture, you could actually rescue the phenotype in, in fibroblasts in humans. Some of the early work looked at actually just providing the AMP and DGMP that is supplemented. And we initially did that to uh, a child on the um, southeast coast of, of the US. And we were able to deliver reasonably high quantities of deoxyadenosine monophosphate and deoxyguanosine monophosphate um, as oral medications. But as kind of would be predicted from some of the other studies that are done, these levels were essentially undetectable in, in blood. I'm thinking that being that the compounds are both broken down by enzymes in the blood and in the gut. In the meantime, uh, a team at Medical College of Wisconsin and subsequently in South Carolina worked on generating a, a hepatocyte cellular model that was then used for high-throughput screening of existing compounds. And that showed that nicotinamide riboside, I'm going to call it NR, um, was able to partially rescue the phenotype. So NR works by increasing the translation of mitochondrial RNA into proteins. Um, and so although there is a deficiency of the mitochondrial DNA, that's to say there's not enough mitochondrial DNA, if you increase the amount of protein that is made per given molecule of mitochondrial DNA, you can actually rescue the phenotype for a period of time and have enough of the mitochondrially encoded proteins to prevent the mitochondrial DNA depletion from having a, a long-term systemic effect. So those studies were done, they're completed, and actually some children have been put on NR, and it demonstrates a rescue for a period of time of the hepatic and cerebral phenotype. Unfortunately, it doesn't address the underlying problem, and so the mitochondrial DNA continues to decline in quantity in the kids as they get older, and so ultimately you get to a point where the NR stops rescuing the phenotype. Knowing that we could rescue the phenotype in tissue culture um, with the DAMP and the DGMP, and we were actually able to go on and show that just the monotherapy of the DGMP rescues the phenotype in tissue culture, but we knew that this would not work when it came to providing the medication systemically because of the experience we'd had with children. Um, we'd had a very similar experience when we'd actually tried to dose rats with um, DAMP and DGMP parenterally, and that essentially the, the compound was catabolized. So um, I, I guess serendipitously, um, I ended up having a conversation with a, a group that was working on rational drug design at a, a meeting, and they had asked a question about proteid therapy and whether we understood about proteid therapy. And so I had to say, no, I've, I've never really heard of this. So proteid therapy was, was a, a concept that was developed at University of Cardiff, and it is 
essentially a concept of taking nucleotides and making them into a prodrug by surrounding them by a shielding molecule. And this has been used very effectively for the treatment of hepatitis B. And so the, the key drug that is used to treat hepatitis B is a, is a proteid drug. Um, and so the, the concept was that maybe with some rational drug design, we could actually design a proteid um, which shielded the DGMP to enable systemic delivery without it being broken down by the enzymes in the blood and potentially the enzymes in the gut. And more interestingly, the proteins can actually be designed to target into the mitochondria. So the, the payload actually ends up um, getting unshielded and made available in the mitochondria. And so this led to the, the rational drug design of the, the CERC series of compounds. Mike was on the call too, trapped at home during a period of COVID-imposed isolation. And he took over the story to explain how his team looked at the efficacy of CERC 913 and just why it's so complicated to find a good animal model and prove the efficacy of treatment. You know, this was really kind of a nice situation where we had a good collaborative group. So David David and I worked at the time at Medical College of Wisconsin together and we worked closely on the clinical side with uh, myself doing all the muscle biopsy diagnostics work, David seeing the patients. And so we, you know, we were identifying rare diseases and doing kind of genotype, phenotype uh, correlations. And David also knew this drug design group and, and my my research group is pretty active in drug development and, and assay design. And so they were a couple of known hurdles to um, testing the uh, agent itself. One was that there's the possibility of just giving DGMP, but that doesn't circulate well in an active uh, state. And then the additional thing is that there are inactivators in the serum of rats that were inactivating the protride drug that this company called Icorion at the time, but now it's been acquired by Seracor, uh, that they were trying to use. And so the problem really was that they had a drug that they thought was promising, and uh, David and I were working with a rat model of disease that didn't actually show a clinical phenotype, but it did show about a 90% decrease in mtDNA content. So it had a, a molecular signature that was consistent with the disease. But we couldn't just directly dose animals and look for a phenotype. And so we needed to identify a, a better testing strategy. And so we first started off just looking at tissue slices of the liver to see if we could use that as a, you know, kind of an ex vivo um, differentiated organ because we were worried about whether or not the um, a cell culture, primary cell culture approach would actually recapitulate the mtDNA deficiency. And that didn't work well because too many dead cells, basically. And so then we really worked with a primary hepatocyte cell culture model to develop a system where they survived for a maximum period of time. Uh, we tracked a couple of different phenotypes, and then we were able to test the, the drug for a limited number of days. Okay. And so the Fortunately, when we did primary hepatocyte culture, which took a little bit of time to uh, figure out, uh, we were able to make them survive for up to eight days uh, reliably, and they also showed the mtDNA depletion. And then we were able to look at first at a couple of these different CERC compounds that were candidates for uh, something to move forward with. The CERC 913 was the one that actually behaved the best in terms of rescuing the mtDNA phenotype. We were able to compare it to DGMP alone and, and show that this protide approach was more effective uh, at similar doses at increasing mtDNA content. And then we were also um, able to look at a couple of other things like cell viability and protein expression to see how many different endpoints we were able to test in terms of efficacy. And really those were too variable to be useful, presumably because 
by the time we were actually getting an impact on protein expression, the cells were actually starting to not survive anymore in a good state in, in culture. We, we were just kind of running out of time and the health of the system was, was going down. And so, so really, you know, in, in one respect, this is a test of the therapeutic agent, but in another respect, it really was a test of the system to demonstrate that you could take these animals that were not phenotypically diseased and extract the, the hepatocytes from them retain their disease phenotype, and then in a limited fashion, test out drugs in a way that gave biologically relevant responses, you know, dose responses and things like that. And there may be those listening wondering why there was this need to reinvent the wheel. So I asked why they couldn't just use a standard tissue culture. Um, so in dividing cells, such as fibrils, when they're dividing, um, deoxycytosin kinase is expressed. And deoxycytosin kinase actually takes over the role of DGOK in dividing cells. So in dividing cells and actually in the HEPG2 cell line, which is the cancer cell line, again, deoxycytosin kinase is expressed. And so to recreate the hepatocyte model in um, HEPG2 cells, we actually had to knock down DCK as well. And so dividing cells, you, you don't replicate the phenotype. And so this is a disorder of senescent cells. Now, this study appears within the special issue and is accompanied by a visual abstract. In spite of the positive findings from their work, there are no plans to move forward with further trials of CERC-913. But experiments like this are as much about testing techniques as medication. And I asked Michael and David about what that might mean going forward. I think that a part of this is, you know, we proved that it was possible to take this approach. Right? We had a, a number of logistical hurdles that were not obvious in terms of the solution. This was a phenotype that's that's really only present in the liver in terms of mtDNA depletion, and the rest of the animal wasn't showing it. The animal was producing an inactivator of the agent that, as far as I understand, wasn't actually going to be a limiting factor in, in higher animals. It's a rodent thing and not, not really a, a, a monkey or a, a human limitation. And yet we need to be able to pass through some sort of relevant testing on the way to higher animals. And there is the inability, as David said, of using standard cell culture, replicating cell types to test the phenotype, because as soon as the nuclear elements of synthesizing these nucleosides and nucleotides, you know, are active in replicating cells, it doesn't necessarily need to rely on the mitochondrial machinery that, that this TGK gene encodes. So overall, I, I think it's it's a nice demonstration of the ability to use these systems for screening in a basic sense. It's also a nice demonstration of what you can't get away with, you know, in terms of pushing the phenotypes and the timelines and things like that. And the fact that this is possible, the fact that this approach is actually better than non-protide supplementation, I think is a, an important step forward kind of philosophically people that are trying to develop treatments for these sorts of diseases. Now, regular listeners will know that if there's a stupid question to ask, I'll always ask it. And after recent conversations about gene therapy, I wanted to understand why this wasn't the answer here. Isn't it just the best way forward for everything? So with the, the DGMP, um, as I said, it gets broken down when it goes into the blood and you don't really get very good bystander rescue effects. Um, that's to say, if you have a cell next to the cell making it, it doesn't seem to actually work very well to get it transferred across to the relevant mitochondria. Um, so if you do gene therapy, you can rescue the cells which the gene therapy payload gets into. We don't seem to do a very good job of rescuing the other cells. Most of the gene therapies that we've looked at, um, adenovirus, AED, all end up largely in the liver. And so you can rescue the liver. Um, we've shown that if you do a liver transplant, it fixes the liver problem, but it doesn't fix the brain problem or the myopathy. Um, and so the real challenge with gene therapy is you, you'd need to get the, the gene therapy payload 
primarily into the brain where it works the most. Um, and gene therapy into the brain is tricky. Intrathecal gene therapy has come a huge way. And obviously with spinal muscular atrophy, there is now approved gene therapy that gets into the, the brain, um, but it doesn't really get into the basal ganglia and some of the other places that are key for this disease as well as we would hope. Um, and so I think, yes, potentially in the future, DNA therapy might work, but you can't make the DGMP that you need in one cell and get it reliably sent around the rest of the body to the other cells that need it. So you, if you can do gene therapy, you have to get the payload actually into every affected cell for it to work. So Shamimi, that's a new drug that showed some promise and a new technique for looking at drug efficacy. It seemed that it took a lot of iterations to even make some progress and then now it's all stopped. Is that a common problem in mitochondrial research? I think sadly, this sort of thing does happen more than we would like it to. And the reasons are many and varied. It, it may be that funding has dried up to progress it. It may be that there are regulatory hurdles that are difficult to resolve. It may be that the authors have other therapies in the pipeline and they've moved on to other options. But one of the common denominators for several of the mitochondrial therapies is that we don't really know how to measure efficacy in people affected by mitochondrial disease. This problem of having really robust outcome measures to determine the efficacy or not of a therapy in development has really beset the whole field with a lot of headaches in the last few years. And as I said at the beginning of the podcast, we are making some progress there. But what we need to do is validate some of the proposed outcome measures specifically for mitochondrial disease. One way of doing that is by doing some prospective natural history studies and looking to see what is a good prognostic measure in children and adults affected by mitochondrial disease. Because we know that many of the biomarkers that we we know of, such as lactate and FGF21, can vary at different times in a patient's disease course and may even be normal. Also, um, the clinical features can really improve and then get worse again. And so if we did a trial in a snapshot when a patient was improving spontaneously, it would be very difficult to know if the treatment was truly efficacious. I suppose that's a frustrating thing for families when what they well you want is a treatment and we need to spend more time studying the disease. And, and getting to understand what's going on. Yes, I, I agree. It really is frustrating. And I think that the mitochondrial disease community is really helping us in this journey. And, and the patient advocacy groups across the globe have come together to try and push forward therapies for mitochondrial disease. They are focusing first on Lee syndrome with the Lee syndrome international consortium that's funding a roadmap project And one of the first things that they're planning to do is a prospective natural history study looking at various outcome measures in Lee syndrome. Well, that's exciting. And and we certainly we go from from that study that stopped that was looking at rat liver cells to a study undertaking the rats themselves. The excitingly named JP4039 reactive species scavenger preventing sulfite induced damage in the striatum of rats. So Professor Gian Lipnitz joined me to explain his work. And because this drug is intended to tackle sulfide oxidase deficiency, I obviously had to start by asking what that was. So the deficiency of sulfide oxidase is a condition observed in genetic disorders that are often fatal. And they are called isolated sulfide oxidase deficiency and molybdenum cofactor deficiency. Mutations in the SWOX gene 
which encodes the apoenzyme sulfide oxidase, cause the isolated sulfide oxidase deficiency. And on the other hand, mutations, when they occur in genes that encode the enzymes of the molybdenum cofactor biosynthetic pathway, cause molybdenum cofactor deficiency. And actually, there are many times mutations in MOX1, MOX2, and gephrine, they result in molybdenum cofactor deficiency type A, B, and C, respectively. As I said earlier, they are often fatal disorders, and their clinical and neuropathological presentation are practically indistinguishable. Patients usually present with very severe seizures, psychomotor retardation, cerebral and cerebellar atrophy, white matter alterations, and microcephaly. And the most important, at least for this study, is that the biochemical findings, they include predominantly accumulation of sulfite in many organs of the patient, including uh, the central nervous system. But there are other metabolites that also accumulate, such as S-sulfocysteine and thiosulfate. And another thing that is important to mention about these disorders is that the treatment is very, very limited. It's based on symptom management, but the seizures that are very severe, they are often refractory to treatment. And what it's usually done is to administer in the patients a low methionine diet but again, it's, it's very limited. The result is not very successful. And this treatment, uh, it aims to reduce sulfite levels in the biological fluids and tissues of patients, but it's only useful in milder forms of the diseases. So it's, it's an urgent need to, to find uh, novel therapeutic strategies for, for these disorders. So like you said, you've got dietary management, you've got anticonvulsant therapy, which you can really struggle with. Mm-hmm. In this study, you're looking at something called JP4039. I presume they'd change that for production. But why why would this be effective? What is it and what does it do? Uh, it's actually a novel molecule. It was designed by, by Dr. Peter Whip from the University of Pittsburgh, which is a great collaborator of ours. As I said before, Patients have sulfite accumulation, and it is said to be the major problem because sulfite is very, very toxic. It augments the reactive species levels. It also uh, impairs bioenergetics. So we wanted a molecule that is directed to mitochondria and could reduce reactive oxygen species levels. So it could help patients. JP4039 is a mitochondria-targeted electron and reactive oxygen species scavenger. It's comprised of a nitroxide group, that is the group that scavenges reactive oxygen species, and it's also comprised of a peptide that is responsible for directing the compound to the mitochondria. So this peptide it allows a 20 to 30-fold enrichment of JP4 in the mitochondria. And that's why we think that JP4 
is a better antioxidant than the classical ones such as vitamin E, vitamin C, and, and others that we can see in many studies. And very important for us is that a previous study showed that JP4 could reduce reactive species generation and improve bioenergetics in fibroblasts from a patient with molybdenum cofactor deficiency type A. So we thought, okay, let's go and evaluate JP4039 in our chemical model of these uh, disorders, the isolated sulfide oxidase deficiency and molybdenum cofactor deficiency. And I mean, the, the story of this podcast really is the story of how we get treatments from kind of the bench to the bedside. And in, in your case, you were looking at this within a, a rat model. So how did you test this hypothesis about the JP4039? We injected sulfide into the striatum of rats and uh, we chose striatum because basal ganglia are commonly affected in patients. And then 30 minutes after sulfide administration, we evaluated some proteins that regulate apoptosis and also uh, markers of oxidative stress, such as antioxidant enzymes, levels of antioxidant molecules, among other markers. And we also injected uh, JP4 via intraperitoneal injection twice, 24 hours and two hours before sulfite administration. And we wanted to see whether JP4 could prevent sulfite-induced alterations. And as expected, we saw that sulfite could induce apoptosis and sulfite also induced antioxidant system impairment and caused bioenergetic disruption. And we saw that JP4 could prevent these alterations. And it was very, very successful. We have a group that we call the control always. And we often saw that JP4 could turn the levels of all markers near to the values of the control group. And it's not something we commonly see in our studies with rats. Most uh, compounds, they do not reach levels close to the control group. And because uh, the diagnosis of, of these disorders, they are often uh, performed after the neurological dysfunction appear and after the increase of sulfite levels. So it's desirable that JP4 could also prevent toxicity when administered after the increase of sulfite level. With such promising results, it's tempting to rest on one's laurels, but obviously the goal isn't addressing sulfite levels in rat brains. I asked Ian what he was planning to do next. Uh, we are hoping we can um, obtain a knockout mice so it would be a, a better model for us to, to test JP4. And we also have access to fibroblasts from more patients now. And so we, we intend to also test JP4039 on these cell fibroblasts. And let's see what happens. We are looking forward to that. 
And I mean, the other thing here is the administration wise, it was a peritoneal injection. It's an unusual route of administration for a, a medication in humans. Mm-hmm. How would you foresee the route of administration evolving over time? So we talked to Dr. Peter again, and he's currently developing other analogs that can be administered via intravenous or intramuscular injection. And indeed, we have seen some studies with mice, and we saw that when JP4 was administered via intramuscular or intravenous injection, it also induced beneficial effects. So we are going in the near future uh, to, to test the effects of JP4 with these routes of administration. Shamima, this is obviously really exciting stuff. A successful pilot, clear plans for progression, and already some iterations that make a version for human studies a more palatable prospect. Can we get excited about this or is it still a long road to go from rat models to human ones? Well, I think it it is a time to be cautiously excited because regulatory authorities across the globe are trying to make the journey from the preclinical model to human therapies a smoother and more rapid one. And hopefully they will get to, to patients soon. The one note of caution I would suggest here is that we know with molybdenum cofactor deficiency that the therapeutic window is very narrow. So I'd be interested to see how they can make sure that we can get the treatments into patients as early as possible. Well, our final guest certainly has something we can get excited about. Dr. Mark Patterson, journal editor, Mayo clinician and owner of one of the smoothest voices in the IMD world. Join me to talk about a study looking at a potential treatment for Friedrich's ataxia and a paper he worked on reporting positive results in human subjects. Once again, I was left showing my ignorance, as I had to admit that I didn't realise FA was even considered a mitochondrial disorder. Well, you know, I think if uh, Friedreich's ataxia had first been described now instead of in 1863, no one would have had any surprise that it's a mitochondrial disorder because it's multi-system. It involves the nervous system, the heart, the endocrine system by causing diabetes in many patients. It actually has, it's a little unusual in its pattern of inheritance in that it's autosomal recessive and not mitochondrial. But uh, otherwise, I think, as I say, if we were first recognizing the disease today, we wouldn't be surprised that it's mitochondrial. This was a paper that had drawn me in, not least because the treatment seemed to come from chocolate, but epicatechin seemed really hard to pronounce. Yes, well, I I don't know if my pronunciation is any better, James, whether it's epicatechin or epicatechin. But uh, it's a a flavonol, uh, one of a a family of plant compounds which have antioxidant properties. It it is actually, it's in highest concentration in cocoa and particularly dark chocolate. So if you needed a reason to eat dark chocolate, here's another one. Uh, It it is also found in green tea and wine uh, and quite a number of other uh, plant-based products. But for the purpose of this study, the action which is of most interest is that it encourages mitochondrial proliferation. And as you are aware, if you have mitochondria that are defective, even increasing their number and enhancing their biogenesis can help overcome a quantitative defect. And in Friedreich's ataxia, the basic problem is in the mitochondrion and seems to involve the transport of iron out of the mitochondrion because of deficiency of a gene product that's been named frataxin. And this iron accumulation leads to increased free radical generation with all of the downstream degenerative consequences associated with that. That would sort of rather imply this is a treatment that could be applied to a number of different disorders. 
Yes, I think that's certainly possible. Epicatechin isn't specific for Friedreich ataxia, so it's certainly conceivable that it could be helpful in other mitochondrial disorders. I think the reason that Friedreich's was suggested was that amongst a family of ultra-rare diseases, it's one of the more common disorders. And so it's not easy to study, but a little easier to study than some ultra-rare diseases. And the story of this podcast is obviously how trials move from animal models to human models and along the way through cell lines. Is this something that started in animals or is this something that was based on observational work in humans and then has progressed to a study? I'd say there's a little bit of both, but for the purpose of this study, most of the important work was done in animals, particularly in myocytes, in muscle cells, showing evidence of uh, myocyte regeneration, increase in bulk, um, as well as changes at a cellular level. But there is also some epidemiological data regarding vascular benefits of uh, epicatechin, particularly with respect to nitric oxide generation and effects on blood pressure. Uh, now, of course, it's very difficult, as you're well aware, to study dietary interventions in humans because there are so many factors you can't control. But there's certainly a line of evidence with respect to benefits of the compound uh, from that point of view as well. And the study we're talking about, you gave 10 patients epicatechin, I think I'm going to get. Um, so what, what was it that you found? Does it work? Well, I, I think the important thing about this study to note is that this is a very early phase study. It's a small number of patients conducted over a, a, a six-month period. And so the likelihood that you're going to get definitive answers is very small. With this sort of phase two study, you're really asking a couple of questions. One is, does the compound appear to be safe in this population? And secondly, do you have any signals that you're seeing a positive benefit. So in that respect, there was no evidence of any significant adverse effects. And secondly, we did see evidence of benefit in terms of cardiac function in particular. This was measured using MRI and echocardiography, looking at left ventricular mass, looking at end diastolic volumes and so on. And there were a couple of statistically significant results there, which is Actually, to my mind, quite a remarkable accomplishment with such small numbers for a relatively short period of time. When you looked at the neurological outcome measures, which were principally the modified Friedreich ataxia rating scale, there was evidence that somewhat over half the patients showed a response and showed evidence of improvement, but this did not achieve statistical significance. You've mentioned that it's it's small numbers, but at the same time, it, it seems to be a, a safe drug. But where do you go next and what's to stop people prescribing this based purely on the, the evidence so far? Yeah, well, I, I think that's a great question. And that's a big uh, issue we have in ultra rare diseases. If you have compounds that are accessible, there's evidence they're safe and some evidence they're effective then uh, understandably, parents and patients will try to get access to it. And that can make it difficult to mount studies. And this has been a problem with a number of ultra-rare diseases. What I would hope, of course, we've had disruptions because of the COVID pandemic, which has disrupted everything. But I would be hopeful that these results are strong enough that they would encourage the sponsor to provide funding to go on to a, a larger scale study. Okay, so it's not happening just yet, is what you're saying? Uh, it is not happening just yet, but we're, we're hopeful that uh, it could be pursued further. Okay. So what I'm hearing you saying is that chocolate and wine is basically very good for you. Absolutely, James.
Perfect. I mean, that's really all I kind of wanted to ask you about, Mark. I think it's really interesting to see how these studies evolve over time. And it's certainly good that these small studies are being done, even though it obviously just is a, tells us that we need need to do more work. But it's a, it seems like a good start. I, I think so. And, you know, the other issue uh, that's important with this type of study is particularly where you're looking at a neurodegenerative disease, that there are a number of challenges. The first one is Generally speaking, you need patients and you're only going to have patients who have been diagnosed because they have neurological symptoms. That implies that they've already exhausted the reserve capacity of certain neurologic subsystems. And often that exhausted capacity reflects irreversible damage to the nervous system. And so one of the challenges is if we have patients who are diagnosed in a traditional fashion, we may have largely missed the boat before we start the study. And yet to conduct a study and to provide evidence that will convince regulators that you're doing something uh, generally requires that you have patients who are symptomatic because there's a strong move at the moment uh, for many of these disorders to institute, particularly in the United States, I should say, to institute newborn screening, which is logical. And if you have a safe and effective therapy, why not intervene before a patient's symptomatic with the goal of maintaining them in an asymptomatic state or even preventing the onset of disease. But then the issue becomes, how do you prove that to the satisfaction of regulators that you're actually preventing disease in people who would have inevitably developed symptoms when you're dealing with diseases which have a broad range of presentations. And therein lies the need for big natural history studies as well, I guess. Exactly. That's where we need registries and natural history data uh, and to recognize, as I, one of my favorite mantras is that all data is precious, particularly in these diseases, and we need to preserve this and recognize that even though it may be imperfect, the perfect is often the enemy of the good in this situation. And we're trying to convince regulators of that as well. Mark has really captured two big issues there. Can we ask patients to avoid promising therapies when there aren't other options available to them while studies are completed? And how can we ensure those studies satisfy regulators when these rare diseases are poorly understood and clinical endpoints are hard to define? Is that something that you've um, you've come across in your clinical practice, Shamima? No, I, I haven't ever prescribed epicatechin. Catechin. <laughs> um, but I do encourage my patients to eat lots of chocolate because I think it can only be good for them. Well, if it works in the world of Harry Potter, why wouldn't it? Um, I mean, it does feel like progress is being made, uh, but we've spoken about just a tiny number of conditions in a field that numbers over 300 distinct diseases affecting around one in a thousand children. Shamima, how do you think it's going? I am an optimist and I think the field is progressing and reflecting on, on the first four welcome conferences, which led to the special issue, and then the fifth conference that happened last December and the sixth that's due to happen next week, I do think that the field of mitochondrial medicine has reached a tipping point. Until the more recent conferences, the overwhelming emphasis in our field was focused on understanding mitochondrial biology and pathobiology in patients with genetic mitochondrial diseases. And I still think we have a lot of work to do there. But thanks to the widespread adoption of exome and genome sequencing, many of the diagnostic hurdles have been overcome We now know of more than 300 genetic forms of mitochondrial disease, possibly closer to 400. And some of the core mechanistic insights are beginning to emerge thanks to traditional biology, biochemistry, and also the applications of multi-omics technologies. 
the field is beginning to embrace novel therapeutic modalities and moving beyond traditional small molecule therapy. And there have been some exciting developments in gene therapy for the mitochondrial DNA disorders with a very successful clinical trial of AAV4 gene therapy into the eye for labor hereditary optic neuropathy that was published in 2020. However, there are still very many challenges lying ahead of us, partly because of how rare and heterogeneous each of these individual genetic diseases is, and because patient registries, although they exist, um, still need some improvements. But there is a lot of work happening in that area too, both from the clinical end and also from the patient advocacy groups. We still need the validated outcome measures specific to mitochondrial disease that we've been talking about today, and the prospective natural history studies with which to empower rigorous clinical trials. Overcoming these challenges requires partnership across the entire ecosystem of biomedicine. Well, I, I don't think I can add to that at all, except to thank the, all the contributors to this episode. Well, thank you very much, James, and to Mike, David, Gian, and Mark. And one thank you to you, Shamima. It's been uh, lovely to have company for this one. It's always a pleasure to record podcasts with you, James. Well, I hope we'll continue to bring you more news about mitochondrial treatment in the years to come. And you can find these papers in the March 2021 issue of JIMD or by clicking on the links in the podcast description. Thank you for listening. Until next time, goodbye.